Good morning, Discovery. How's everybody this morning? It is good to see you on this uh, somewhat chilly morning. <clears throat> Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year. I'm excited. I, uh, I, I say this every time I'm here, and I'm always honored to come and preach here, and I love preaching here. It always feels like family. I love the, I love the culture that you have at this church, the fellowship. I love, I mean, it just feels very much like the way church should feel, less of a production and more of a family coming together to worship and to hear from God's word and a little bit um, less structured than maybe things need to be. And I always appreciate that about this church. It feels very, uh, it feels very natural in the way it should be. So thanks for being such a welcoming church. I, uh, I love the new year. We, um, I don't know if you're like me, I love new. I love uh, fresh. Uh, I love, I like change. I'm one of those people that likes change. Uh, you know, there are some people that if things work the way they are, why change them? And I'm one to think if things worked once, well, why not make it better the next time? And so uh, the new year is always a good time of reflection for me and for our family. We just spent some time yesterday as a family just assessing how are we doing as a family and going over family values and family mission and what, you know, we asked this question yesterday um, and, and this is a question that I'll put before you, and it'll be kind of our landing zone. The question that we asked as a family yesterday is, what kind of family do we want to be? What kind of family do we want to be? You know, the, this world is, it just feels like there's so, like, increasing pressures and voices and influences, and it's hard to kind of navigate and, and remember who is it that God has called us to be? And that's something that we're trying to do. And, you know, we got a gaggle of kids and a whole bunch of other living things at our house right now. And uh, it's kind of like a zoo at our house. You know, it's, we're thinking about charging admission. Uh, you can kind of come pet the kids and, you know, play with the pets. So, you know, and it's just, you know, it's just life can be crazy, right? Like, like so many different changing things and so many and now with social media and there's just so many voices and pressures and man I just want to like I want to lead our family well in what kind of family do we want to be and not just be tossed around by all the latest trends and voices but remember who has God called us to be as a family and you know, I, I think I mentioned this last time I was here. One of the things that's been so inspiring in our family is building a relationship with this Amish community. And one of the things that I've been inspired by in the Amish community is um, I've often thought about the Amish community as, as restrictive, all these things that you can't do. But when you start to get inside the Amish community, it's all about centering. Centering the things that are important and minimizing distractions from those things. And so it's all about centering family, community, and church. 
And, and how can we be a family that centers, centers the things that are important to us and, and remembers who has God called us to be? So we're going to, that'll be kind of our landing zone too, is, is a charge for you as a church to remember who God has called you to be. And what is that, what kind of church do you want to be in this new year? Uh, I'm excited about this morning and nervous at the same time. I'm uh, going to preach from Matthew 28, one of my favorite verses, something that I preach often uh, and use in various ways in our ministry, especially with young people. It's a, a passage that is very familiar to many of us, at least part of it is very familiar to many of us, and it's one of these passages that uh, one of the reasons I, I, I love it is it's a passage that can preach itself, right? Like, this is one of those, I'm not an advocate, and we're going to do some work to put this in context. That's always so critical when reading scripture, is knowing the context of a passage. This is one of those passages that you can't, it can stand alone in some ways, and it can preach itself. But it's also a passage that when you sit with it, and as I've done over the years, uh, I've found so much depth. And I feel like I'm, I've been sitting with this passage and meditating on this passage and studying this passage and preaching this passage for years, many years. And I feel like it's still growing in depth in my spirit. And every time I, I come to this passage, I, I just feel like it has a new depth for me. And I love this passage also because it, it helps us understand the character of God and it helps us understand how this book works which I think is really important, is to understand how to rightly handle the Word of God. And there's some things that we can do with this passage that will help us continue to be good stewards of the Word of God. Uh, I'm nervous because um, I haven't preached this here at this church, or actually in any church. I've only used this in the context of our ministry. I haven't preached this at a church. I've preached at a lot of churches, a lot of sermons. I've never preached this at a church. And the last time I was here, I think it was late summer, we were out on the lawn, and I brought another original, another Ryan Walkus original. And um, we looked at Acts chapter 2, which my kids are so tired of me preaching from Acts chapter 2, because I did a bit of a uh, preaching tour this summer, not on purpose, I just got invited to preach a lot of places, and so I just kind of used the same passage and contextualized it in different places. And my kids just were just like, are we doing that same thing again? <clears throat> so they haven't heard this one yet this morning. But I'm a bit nervous because when I did this last, um, this summer, my father-in-law said it was one of the best sermons he's ever heard. And so now it's like that bar is really high. I'm a little bit nervous because it's really only one way to go from here. So we'll see how this how this goes this morning. I'm going to put this in context a little bit, and here's how we're going to proceed this morning. I'm going to do a little bit of work, because there's some work that has to be done to put this in the context of Matthew's gospel and kind of what's going on in the narrative. And so I'm going to do some work to put it in context. Then my daughter is going to read the passage for us, and here's what I need to prepare you for. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of work together. So we're going to read it. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, you don't need to put it up yet, but it'll be up on the screen. 
as Lilia reads it, I want you to interact with it, and then I'm going to ask for a little bit of feedback. As we read this, it's just five, five verses, and I want to just ask, what is sticking out to you? What's the Spirit highlighting in you? And I think that the Word of God is best engaged in community. And so we're just going to do that a little bit, and I'm just going to ask for some feedback and what's sticking out to you, what observations do you have. And then I like to ask this too, what questions might this bring up for you? I think that's a really important thing to do when you're reading scriptures, is ask good questions of God's word. And so what, um, just in these few verses, what questions might come up? And then we're going to actually go through it, and we're going to work through this passage, but we're going to actually work through it backwards. We're going to start toward the end of it, and work backwards to the front of it and see if we can kind of come up with a landing zone in that. So let's put this, um, this passage in context before we read it. What we're going to read here this morning is that's at the very end of Jesus' life. So the setting here in the narrative is it's at the very end of Jesus' time on earth. So we don't know exactly Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose again. And we know from the scriptures that he spent 40 days walking the earth, teaching his disciples, and then he ascended. Somewhere in those 40 days, this story that we're going to read this morning happened. We don't know exactly where, where it was in the story, but it's somewhere in those last 40 days. So this is after he's done all of his miracles, died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, now he's still on earth, about to ascend into heaven so that's the, 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 the context of the narrative. Now the context within the scriptures, we've got to really understand this in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew uh, has a couple of key things that he does throughout his gospel. There's a couple of key uh, uh, um, themes that Matthew introduces very early on and then are developed throughout Matthew's gospel. One of the primary themes of Matthew's gospel is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. You see this, and Matthew develops this theme, and you'll see why this is important when we get to uh, today's scripture. But Matthew introduces his gospel this way, in Matthew 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, the Savior, the Rescuer, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And then Matthew ends this genealogy in chapter 1, says there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So Matthew... Matthew starts his whole gospel with this introduction to the Messiah. That's a primary theme. And what you find as Matthew goes through his writing, he tries to portray that this is the Messiah that you have been expecting. This is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. Maybe that's a better way to put it. This is the Messiah you've been waiting for. Jesus came in a day when there is great expectation for the rescuer, the Messiah, to come. And Matthew is saying, he is the Messiah that you have been waiting for. But there's this other piece that Matthew does all throughout this as well. Simultaneously, 
He says, Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for, but he is not the Messiah you've been expecting. Maybe that's the right way to put it. He's not the Messiah you have been expecting. And, and you can see this even again in, in the genealogy. If you really, and, and I think sometimes we just pass over this genealogy because there's a bunch of weird names and we don't really know what, but, but the genealogy in Matthew's gospel tells a really important story. And when you really unpack that, and I, we don't have time to do that this morning, uh, but I, you know, in, in our, we have a bridge year program, a gap year program in our, in our ministry. We spend an hour and a half with our students just going through the genealogy of Matthew, unpacking that, and it's not even enough time. Because when you look through that, what you find is it's a scandalous genealogy. It's a scandalous genealogy. It's a genealogy of a Messiah that comes from a line of murderers, deceivers, foreigners, half-breeds, adulterers, outcasts. It's not the genealogy that you would expect if you're expecting a conquering king, which is what many people were expecting of the Messiah. They're expecting this conquering king, but Jesus introduces the Messiah as one who's coming from a very scandalous genealogy. There's this other phrase that repeats often in the book of Matthew and how Jesus refers to himself as the Messiah. Does anyone know what is the phrase that Jesus most often uses to refer to himself in the book of Matthew? Son of man. That's how Jesus most often refers to himself in the book of Matthew, over 30 times. He refers to himself as the son of man. Now, what's interesting is when you read how, when Jesus, the context in which Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, it's also, it's often, not always, but it's often in a context of struggle, of suffering, of sacrifice. Now, there's a, many documentaries, uh, many pages written on what is meant by the Son of Man. Um, but hold on to that, because we're going to get to that at the very end when we read today's scripture. The Son of Man becomes very important at the end of Jesus, or uh, Matthew's gospel. Second main theme in Matthew's gospel is the kingdom. Jesus makes it very clear he's coming to establish a kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, the first thing that Jesus says in his earthly ministry is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come, or is coming near, or is at hand. The kingdom, the kingdom is a primary theme throughout Jesus' gospel. And what you'll find is, again, this is not the kingdom that people expect. It's not a kingdom that's going to be established through political might and power and prestige, but it's what we like to call the upside-down kingdom, the kingdom that is established through humility and sacrifice and suffering. It's a kingdom that does not exalt the high and mighty, but centers the poor and the oppressed. It's a kingdom that is all about reconciliation and restoration. It's a kingdom that is not set up to divide people groups, but to unite especially those on the margins. 
So Jesus comes to establish a kingdom. Inherently, in, inherent in Jesus' kingdom is mission. Jesus comes for a mission, a mission to restore and redeem this earth. What you'll find also is that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom for all peoples. Jesus' kingdom was never meant for one nation, one people group. It was a kingdom that was meant to bring in all peoples on the earth. And lastly, the last primary theme in Matthew's gospel is discipleship. Follower. Jesus comes, one of the first things that Jesus does is he calls four young men to come follow him. And what you find when Jesus calls his disciples, he does not call them just into a belief structure. He doesn't say, come to my Bible study. It's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, hey, come to my church service. He says, come follow me. I want to show you a way of life. When Jesus calls his disciples, he is calling them into an all-encompassing way of life. And what you find is throughout Matthew's gospel, he's bringing these young men with him, equipping them, empowering them to be a part of his kingdom and eventually to help advance his kingdom here on earth. So this is the context of Matthew. All of this, these three primary themes develop all throughout Matthew's gospel and they kind of culminate at the very end in Matthew chapter 28. So if you uh, want to turn to your Bibles or we'll put it up on the screen, Lily is going to read for us. As Lilia reads, I want you to just listen very um, carefully. And what words, phrases, ideas stick out to you? And we're going to actually ask for some feedback. Uh, I, we're going to, for the sake of people online, we'll actually pass a mic around. We're gonna, this is going to be a, a, an exercise in brevity. So don't, uh, no timidity, okay? Just like throw some things out. We're going to pass the mic around, we'll take a few minutes, and then let's ask like, what questions come up as we're reading this together. So Lilia, come on up. Lilia is going to read for us, uh, for us Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Awesome. Thank you, Lilia and her support crew. All right, I would love to hear some feedback as we read that. What, just a couple of you, what phrases, I'm not looking for deep insights, but what phrases or words or ideas stick out to you? But also, uh, all authority, I would say, sticks out to me. All authority, interesting. Two of them, 
they worshipped him, but some doubted. Interesting. And, yeah. You don't hear that preached with the Great Commission very often. <laughs> and then the second one, teaching them to obey everything. Teaching them to obey everything. Interesting. Got one in the back. Just a couple of observations. What sticks out to you? Uh, once again, it's all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In the temptation of Jesus Christ, the devil had all that. And he tells Jesus Christ that he would give it to him because it was given to him. Hmm. So apparently now Jesus Christ gets it back. Hmm. So all authority in heaven and on earth. I love that. It's been given to Jesus. One or two more things that stick out to you as we, as we read this. One over here. I love when he says, and surely I am with you always and, to the very end. And surely. So that word surely, is that what you're, I'll be with you, but I hear you emphasizing surely. There's this guarantee, an assurance that we have that Jesus will be with us. I wonder, along with observations, if there's any questions that might come up. Got one right, right beside you, Tony. Yeah, um, not to get hung up on all authority, so everything that happens here currently is authorized by him. Hmm. That's my question. I mean, if it is, there's that cognitive dissonance of all the bad stuff, too. Hmm. Is authorized, which. Okay, so there's some wrestling there. Correct. If Jesus has all authority, so you're getting into the problem of evil, which is a great thing to wrestle with, and not something that we can just skirt skirt around. You know, it's so the the the, the question there is: if Jesus has all authority, what do we do with evil in this world? If, is that authorized by, that's a big question that I'm not going to tackle today. <laughs> I think that Ted already did, and this is because the authority was Satan's, but when Jesus came, he got that authority back and he gave it to us. Interesting. And so that's um, it in a nutshell. One more question in the back, or comment. Somehow or another, the, uh, the therefore doesn't necessarily make sense to me. In other words, it's like all authority sentence, and then therefore go make disciples. It's like, I don't know if that follows therefore to me. So, he's, so my father-in-law is observing the word therefore, which I've heard the Great Commission preached many, many times. And it always starts with go. But that's not the first word in the Great Commission. The first word is therefore. That's an important word in this. That's an important word in this scripture. Therefore, because that's a, what is that, a, conjun a conjunction? Conjunctive adver adverb? Is that what that is? 
It, it, it joins two things. That, that word joins two things there. So go make disciples isn't actually meant to stand alone. It's meant to be connected with whatever comes right before it, which is interesting. Any other questions or observations? One. <laughs> Reed's got something. It's, it's along the lines of the therefore, but it's therefore go, which implies not a passive thing. It's a seeking out and doing. Yeah, so go is an active word. It's an active word. And I want to play on that. I want to launch from that point, but before I launch from there, is there any other observations or questions? I think this word, uh, this word go, I want to start, I want to use that as a launching point. Go. The very last words of Jesus include go. Action. I think there's a couple of different um, words in here that I like to, uh, that really stick out to me in that verse 19. It's, it's go, there's this action word. That this Christian life is not a passive reality. Go, go and do something. Go and do what? Go make disciples. Now, when I look at this, I, one of the things I like to do with this is look at what this doesn't say. I think sometimes to understand what a, a scripture does say, sometimes it's important to look at what it doesn't say. And, and here's what it doesn't say. It, it doesn't say go and make converts of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and, and, and teaching them to believe most of the things that I've suggested to you. That's not what this actually says, even though this is the way we often approach the Christian faith. Go make some converts to believe some things that I've suggested to you. No, this says go make disciples. This is why I highlighted the theme of discipleship in Matthew's gospel, because when you look at Jesus' life, he's always bringing people with him to show them a way of life, show them the way to live in this world. He's not just teaching them things to believe, he's showing them a way of life. He says, go make disciples, just as I have shown you a way of life. Also, you go and show people this way of life. Teach them not just to believe. Now, I, I don't want to minimize belief. It's, you know, we can look at, at a number of places in Scripture that shows how critical it is that we have right belief and right doctrine. Paul writes to Timothy very clearly on this. He says, watch your doctrine closely. Be very careful. And, 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 and I don't want to minimize that, but that's not what this is saying. This is saying go teach them to obey. Obey, again, is action word. He doesn't say just teach them to believe. Teach them to obey. 
and not just obey a few things, but to obey everything. To obey everything I have commanded you in my word. This is why it's so important that we as believers know the word of God. So that we can know everything that Jesus has commanded us. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And the other thing that we find in Jesus' teachings, and this will be important in a few minutes, because along the way, as Jesus is showing his disciples this way of life, one of the things he is very clear on all throughout is this isn't going to be easy. This is not an easy road that I'm leading you on here. This is not an easy path. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it's a very, very narrow road. It's a difficult road, and it's going to be hard along the way. Jesus never says go and suffer, but he does say, you know what, there's going to be some hard times along the way. As he, he just says go obey. And as you obey, you know what, it's going to be hard sometimes. There's going to be some struggle along the way. Some people aren't going to like you. When you stand with me and the things that I care about and you do the things that I say, there's going to be some people that are upset with you. Even people in your own families and in, in your own communities, they're, they're not going to like you sometimes. And, and the world might actually hate you at times. And, and um, it's not going to be easy, but go. But go. And that's where I think this word, therefore, comes in. Jesus says, therefore, go, therefore, what does that connect to? Well, it connects us to verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to whom? Jesus. Jesus. And this is so important because I often hear this preached as if Jesus here is giving his disciples all authority. And we can find, and I, I'll just take a sidestep, you can find places in Scripture where Jesus gives his disciples divine power, spiritual, but you can find that. Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples, it says he gives them power to uh, cast out demons and heal the sick. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who will empower you. So there are places where we see that. This is not one of them. This is not one of them. This says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He doesn't say I am giving you. All. He just says it's all been given to me. And because it has all been given to me, therefore, go. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Son of Man is an important theme throughout Scripture. And one of the things that you'll find when you read commentaries on the book of Matthew, and most all commentators will, will agree on this, even though there's a lot of debate about what Jesus means by the Son of Man, most commentators will link this directly to, to Daniel chapter 8. 
So when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, it is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 8. If you know Daniel chapter 8, Daniel has this vision, and it says in Daniel 8, 13 and 14, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He, the son of man, was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus here, when he says all authority in heaven and on earth, is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the one that Daniel saw in his vision. I am the one with all divine authority. Therefore, go. Now that doesn't quite totally make sense yet until you bring in verse 17. Now in verse 16, it says the 11 disciples. This is an important piece. Judas Iscariot, he's already committed suicide. So these are 11 disciples. They have seen all of Jesus' miracles. These are guys that have been following Jesus 24-7 for three years. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw Jesus heal the lepers. They saw Jesus heal the crippled hand. They saw Jesus crucified, raised from the dead. They saw when Jesus walked through this wall in the upper room after he was raised from the dead, showed him the nail marks in his wrists when Thomas wanted to see evidence. So they've seen everything. If there is anyone in the world that should have no doubt about who Jesus is or what his ministry is, it's these 11 guys, right? There is no, Jesus has not given them any reason to doubt and every reason to believe. And yet, verse 17, when they saw him, this is just the 11 disciples. doesn't appear the women are here, the crowds aren't here. This is just the 11. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Think about that for a second. Some doubted. Some doubted. That brings some questions to my mind. I want to know who doubted. I want names, okay? I want to know what they're doubting. Because I, I want to cast some shade on them for their doubts and what they're doubting. Here's what I love is that neither Matthew nor does it seem Jesus is all that concerned about their doubts. It just acknowledges that some of them doubted. Some doubted. I love, actually, that it doesn't tell us who doubted and what they doubted. Because it doesn't matter. It just says some doubted. Some doubted. They're probably afraid. They're probably pretty confused at this point not really certain of what's going on because he is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. 
He's done some weird things that we don't understand. He's not the Messiah that we expected, but he is the Messiah. We can't deny that. And some of them doubted. I don't know what they doubted. But some of them doubted. And then Jesus says, in the midst of their doubt, in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their uncertainty, it's in the midst of that that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. You go, make disciples. And surely, surely, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your uncertainty, surely I, the Son of Man, will be with you always to the very end of the age. I don't know what that passage does for you. For me, it brings me a lot of comfort. Because if I'm honest, there's times when I've got some uncertainties in my life. I've got some fears in my life. And when I read this passage as if Jesus is giving me all authority in heaven and on earth, then it makes me feel guilty when I have some fears and some doubts. But when I read this and realize that Jesus' very disciples had some fears and some I'm adding fear there, but I'm, I'm assuming there's maybe some fear, and you can see that in later scriptures, that there's definitely some fear involved there, some uncertainty involved there. And I find that in my own life that, man, I, you know, I've been uh, following Jesus since my teenage years, since 18 years old. I've been, you know, ardently following Jesus. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, have a lot of doubts and fears along the way. And, and, and there's a part of me that wants to feel shame and guilt in that because if I just had more faith, then I wouldn't have so much doubt and fear. And yet what this tells me is the life of a follower of Jesus is faith in the midst of doubt and fear. Faith in the midst of uncertainty, that even in the midst of uncertainty, I can still go. And Jesus can still use me, even though I don't have it all figured out. We, um, at uh, Bridge Street Ministries, we like to talk about obedient faith. Obedient faith. And our ministry, for those of you that have journeyed with us, you know this has been a part of our ministry for many, many years. And from the beginning, is what we call obedient faith. Taking steps of faith based on what you reasonably believe the Lord is leading you to do. Now, there's a whole discernment process that goes with that, and, and we do not have the right to do whatever we want to do and call it faith and then expect that Jesus is going to support us in that, right? Like, that's not the way this thing works. But we've taken some steps of faith along the way that we just weren't quite certain if this was God or not, but we, we, we had a, a reasonable belief that we, th we think maybe it is what the Lord is calling us to do, and we take this step of faith in the midst of some uncertainties and doubts and fears, 
and, and believing that if this is God, he's going to provide for it, and he's going to show up, and he's going he's to do the thing that he said he was going to do. And we've taken these steps of faith, and we've seen God provide in miraculous ways, and, and uh, you would think that over the years when you live this life and you take enough steps of faith that it would get easier. You would think that at some point you'd be like, okay, I think I got this thing figured out now. But in fact, as you take more steps of faith, like the bigger the step of faith, the more risk is involved. And what I find is that I still got a lot of flesh in me. And the bigger the risk, the more the fear and the more the doubt. And we're at a point right now in our ministry some of you might have been following along with us. We're working on launching this new youth center over in the Burton Heights neighborhood in one of the hardest neighborhoods in Grand Rapids, one of the most marginalized, neglected, most violent neighborhoods in Grand Rapids. And it is a massive step of faith. And we think that the Lord is calling us to do it, but we're not sure if it's going to work. That's where we're at. That's where we're, I wish I could tell you more than that. I wish I had more certainty than that. But I think based on a discernment process, we reasonably believe the Lord is calling us to do this next thing. And I don't know if it's going to work. There's a lot of doubt and a lot of fear. And so now the choice is, do I go? That's the choice. Do I go? Do I obey? And will I trust that if this is the Lord, he will be with me in the process? And I want to live the kind of life where I can be a part of things that if God doesn't show up, it can't happen. If God doesn't show up, it can't happen. I don't want to fall into a stagnant life that doesn't involve going, making disciples. So I want to just leave uh, you as a church with an encouragement, with a challenge in, as you uh, begin this new year and um, continue, and I know this to be a church that seeks the Lord. I know this to be a church that is, uh, is striving to be obedient and I want to encourage you and, and um, inspire you, challenge you to think about what kind of church do you want to be in this new year? And what is the mission that God is putting before you? And we all know the statistics about churches shrinking and closing down, and we know that, and a lot of churches are falling into self-preservation. And we want to change up some things to preserve. And it becomes this inward focus on how do we survive as a church. And I want to say go. How do you look outward and go and make disciples? I want to encourage you, church, not to fall into this introspection that leaves you simply with self-preservation. But how do you look at what is the mission that God has for us? And in what areas is God calling us to go? 
And when you do that, take heart. There will be doubts. There will be fears. You will think, how is this possible? But remember Jesus' words. Behold, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this church community, for the faithful servants that you have brought to this church. Thank you for the many ways that this church has been effective in proclaiming your gospel and advancing your kingdom. And I pray, God, as we enter into this new year, 2024, that you would give this church community the gift of faith. That you would give this church community a vision for your kingdom here in this place, in this neighborhood, in this community. And that you would give them a gift of courage to take that step of obedient faith. To step out into the things that you are calling. I pray, God, that you would give this church an audacious vision for restoration in this community. Uh, a vision that's greater than seats filled on a Sunday morning, but a vision for your kingdom advancing in this city. A, a vision for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized being welcomed in and finding a place of hope and restoration. I pray, God, that they would have a greater vision, that this church would have an even greater vision uh, of the Son of Man, the one who has all authority in heaven and, of er and on earth, and yet the one, as we have just celebrated, who came down in the lowliest of circumstances and displayed and showed us a kingdom that is an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that is rooted in humility and sacrifice. And where when, when we embrace humility and sacrifice, we find joy and fulfillment and peace. And I pray, God, that this church would be marked by those qualities, that this would be a church marked by, by humility and sacrifice and joy and peace. I pray, God, that in this church and in this neighborhood, your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.